You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. Last time, Cassandra proposed that Woodrow join the Privateers Guild, telling him she didn't believe a word of the terrible rumors that had been spread about him. But Woodrow replied that the rumors were mostly true, that he was in fact responsible for the raising of his hometown and the death of his father. In this episode, and for the rest of the story arc, the tale of the fall of Riley Island and Woodrow's nefarious role in it finally comes out. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moon Shadow, first book of The Adventures of Woodrow the Wicked, part two, The Fall of Riley Island, chapter seven. The last day Woodrow spent on Riley Island started with an autumnal chill, but after the morning fog burned off, the day was bright and unseasonably warm. Woodrow spent that day wandering. He walked along the ragged coastline till he reached the city wall jutting out into the gray sea to form a jetty for the harbor within. He watched a steamer with big horizontal cannons cruise out into the open sea. The Sanguine Knight, an old warship, but the very best of Riley Island's antiquated navy. Sir Monroy would be the captain of the vessel. Everyone knew that. He'd be going out on patrol, protecting the island's coast, perhaps not from pirates or marauding bands of merfolk, but certainly smugglers and tariff dodgers. Woodrow knew about ships because his father, Compton, used to sail, both the sea and the sky, sometimes leaving for months at a time. That was when they lived in Riley Town proper, behind the city walls, where there were neighbor families to take Woodrow into their noisy, crowded homes. As soon as Woodrow figured out some rudimentary form of cooking, porridge, roasted potatoes, boiled eggs, he preferred to stay in his own home and refused to go with them. His father would return from these journeys with a cargo hold loaded with mysterious and arcane materials. One time, he came home with a great cat cub, Tambraline. Eventually, they moved out of the city walls to a little cottage near Riley Island's wooded coastline, that was where his father kept his work, a strange hulking mass of floating material he had been molding since as far back as Woodrow could remember. Of course, Woodrow knew his father's work was beyond uncanny. The townspeople rarely ventured near their lot, but his father never treated it as such. In fact, his father never talked much about his work at all. He just referred to it as work and would go out to do it as if he were merely cutting wood for the fire. The first time Woodrow had ever been truly surprised by his father's creations was about three months ago. That was when Hartford appeared for the first time from inside his father's workshop with his towering iron frame, luminescent eyes, and a strange, jagged stone glowing in his chest. Woodrow had read about golems in some fanciful books, 
but they were always the creation of gods or sorcerers, never men of science. His father just waved off Woodrow's questions in a flurry of business. It seemed, with Hartford's help, that his father's work was just then gearing up. For the next few months, his father worked tirelessly, without so much as speaking to the boy, more than a sentence or two each day. With the golem's aid, all the disparate elements, masses of hovering ore, iron, wood, and thick, transparent glass, began to take shape as the strange vessel that would be called the moon shadow. It seemed the whole vessel would just float off into the air like a lost balloon, if not for another of Woodrow's father's inventions, a series of eight segmented arms that grasped the moon shadow, quite like an octopus might ensnare its prey. Taken as a whole, the visage of the strange ship and its peculiar docking mechanism was unnerving to behold. Just two days ago, Woodrow had awoken to find the moon shadow gone. The octopus arms lay coiled up on the ground like immense spools of rope. Woodrow didn't see his father all that day or the next. On the third day, the boy decided a good, long walk would help to alleviate the anxiety he felt at being abandoned in this way. Woodrow followed the city wall up from the coast and into the still leafy woods. As he walked, he traced with his fingers the mossy mortar between the wall's stones. Above, a turret towered over the autumnal boughs. He could hear a watchman's boots clopping along the allure in the opposite direction toward the sea. He walked on. A rabbit skipped out into the open ahead of him. Woodrow stopped, crouching down to watch the critter. If only he had brought the bow he'd once constructed on a similar lonesome afternoon. His father had stopped going into Riley Town for groceries some time before he disappeared, and the store of oats they had been living off of was getting low. A little rabbit stew would be nice. The rabbit seemed to read his thoughts. It lifted its head to the air, nose twitching, then turned and tore back into the brush. At that same moment, the undergrowth came alive with sudden violence. Woodrow leapt backward and pressed his body against the wall. He watched the foliage for several breathless seconds. The woods fell silent and still. Who's there? he said. Tamberline trotted out from the foliage that had obscured her, the rabbit hanging limp in her jaws. She strode to him and settled in the undergrowth to eviscerate and devour her prey. Woodrow sighed. The great cat finished her meal, and when Woodrow set out through the trees again, she followed. As dusk began to settle, the pair took a more direct route home. The ground sloped away from them toward the sea as they walked, a sure sign they were headed in the right direction when darkness settled on the woods. They emerged from the trees into the unkempt yard and found the moon shadow docked in its peculiar fashion, the moon hovering in the starry sky above it like a broken halo. Dad's back, Woodrow said. He realized he had been doubtful whether his father would, in fact, return. The front door to the house stood yawning and dark as Woodrow approached it. Dad? Nothing. Tamberline slipped by Woodrow and vanished among the house's shadows. Woodrow turned and looked at the moon shadow. It gleamed in the silver light, so naturally it was as if it possessed the same virtue as the moon. The craft hung there motionless, held by its tentacle-like bonds. His father had long ago erected a makeshift tower of wooden stairs and scaffolding that provided access to each of the three rear balconies by way of narrow gangways. 
When landing the ship, his father had managed to line it up with the stairs just right. Indeed, the lowest balcony door stood open, implying the means by which his father had exited the craft. But where could his father be now? Woodrow noticed a pale light glowing from behind the great bubbled glass that formed part of the Moonshadow's hull. He climbed the stairs, crossed the gangway to the bottom balcony, and pushed the door open onto the cargo hold. There stood in the shadows, illuminated only by the light produced from his eyes, and that strange stone in his chest stood Hartford. The golem looked at the boy, with his bright eyes, a vague expression of surprise registering there, before he turned to continue his work of sorting a great number of crates and barrels. Where did all this come from? Woodrow wondered. It looked as though his father had acquired provisions for a very long journey. It was all piled in the most haphazard way, and the golem seemed to be restacking everything in neat piles in the center of the hold. What are you doing? Woodrow demanded of the golem. You're stacking everything on the bay doors. The golem blinked at him, mute and uncomprehending. Look, Woodrow gestured at a pedestal near one wall. It had several switches and knobs on a slanted surface. If I push this button here, the bay doors will open and all the cargo will fall out. You need to stack it around the doors. He had half a mind to go to the panel and use the crane to show the golem how it was done. It was one of the few things concerning the ship he knew how to operate, but his curiosity combined with a growing sense of outrage about having been abandoned without warning compelled him to continue his search for his father. Outside, two men stood examining the still-open front door of the house. Woodrow recognized their brass-buttoned uniforms. They were city watchmen, constables, who reported to Lord Edgar, the governor of Riley Island. One of the men glanced up at Woodrow, standing there on the stairs. He nudged his companion. That the boy? The other turned and squinted up at him as well. Woodrow? But before he could give them an answer, the darkness behind the front door hissed. The men jumped into the air and scurried several feet away. Tam-Tam, no, Woodrow chided the great cat. Come here. She slunk out of the darkness, too proud to heed the boy with any amount of urgency. The constables gripped their billy clubs and cursed. Then they cleared their throats and took a moment to compose themselves before addressing the boy again. Woodrow it is, I take it, said one. Your presence is required in Lord Edgar's hall. Woodrow looked the men over and absently scratched at the scruff on Tamberline's neck. Is it about my father? Is he all right? The constables exchanged meaningful looks. You are to come with us. Immediately. Where's my father? The men stood silent, as if they expected the boy to obey them at any moment. Woodrow was unaccustomed to being ordered to do anything without being given an explanation. He crossed his arms. Sure, I'll go with you, but my great cat is coming too. One of the men threw up his arms in resignation. Fine. They passed under the city walls by the textile street gate and walked the cobblestone thoroughfare, now slick from the evening mist and reflecting gas lamplight. The street was thinly occupied at this hour. Most of the townspeople were at home having supper with their families, and those still out were likely on their way to do the same. The constables led Woodrow to Main Street, where they turned toward Riley Castle. 
The castle spires rose above the thatch and tile roofs as they neared it. The moat separated the castle from the rest of Riley Town. A stone causeway was the only means of ingress. They crossed over the moat to find a couple of castle guards standing in front of an open portcullis. We have found the boy, a guardsman said as they passed under the portcullis. And his big damn cat, replied one of the constables without slowing. Sir Raymond won't be happy about you bringing that beast in here, the guard called after them. But the constable made a vague gesture of indifference. I'm more worried about offending his sisters, muttered the other constable, and the two laughed darkly as they went on into the courtyard. The Lord's Hall was one wing of the main building behind the castle walls. It could be accessed from the courtyard by means of heavy, hardwood doors. Go on in, said one of the constables. What? You're not coming? Woodrow had never been to the Lord's Hall and had no idea how to approach noble society. The thought of going in alone made him nervous. In the lamplight, Woodrow saw the constable's face darken. For the first time, Woodrow got a good look at the man, stout, somewhat advanced in age, but clearly still keen and vigorous. Should we? The other constable, a younger man, asked him. It's bad enough I have to be errand boy to some snooty up-jumped knight, said the older constable. Do I have to wait on him as well? The younger man stiffened. Sir Raymond is Lord Edgar's chosen heir and acts in the governor's interest, he said, and seemed to be addressing not only his colleague and Woodrow, but any interested parties behind the hall's door. The older constable scoffed. Right. And I'm more than happy to play along with that little charade. To a point. Now let's get back to work. We have a town to patrol. Shh, hush, whispered the other constable. They might hear you. The elder man skewed his face in contempt, then turned and tramped away. The other followed, leaving Woodrow and Tamberline standing alone in front of the hall. An evening chill had set in and the idea of going indoors to get warm appealed to Woodrow enough to mitigate his apprehension about being exposed to high society. He pushed the heavy door, let his cat in, and then followed. Inside, he found himself in shadow. On the far side of the room, a fire blazed in the hall's hearth. The firelight cast flickering illumination upon half the hall, half the arched ceiling with its strong wooden support beams, and half a long table. The other half remained in darkness. A group of people sat around the far end of the table, speaking in raised voices while the fire hissed and crackled noisily. He recognized everyone at the table, even if he didn't know some of them personally. At the head, closest to the flames, sat the aged Lord Edgar, bent and cupping a mug of some steaming substance, spiced ale perhaps. To his right sat tall, barrel-chested Sir Raymond. Across from Sir Raymond was Dame Nora, his mother. Beside Dame Nora were her three daughters, Hannah, Fanny, and Jalen. Almost the entire Stone family sat around that table. The family Stone enjoyed a certain amount of notoriety on Riley Island, for all the members of the Stone family were notable in some way. Dame Nora, for example, used to be Miss Nora, Far from being an aristocrat, her father belonged to that much-maligned class of wealthy commoners known to political philosophers as the bourgeoisie. That is to say, he made his money by hard work and an investment 
in capital. Originally from Dewey Island, the ambitious Miss Nora had to move to the out-of-the-way Riley Island to find a knight willing to marry even a wealthy commoner. Nowadays, such matches, while rare, were by no means scandalous. But back in those days, the marriage made Dame Nora either famous or infamous, depending on whom you asked. Sir Rodney Stone was the name of the knight. He gave Dame Nora six children and then suddenly died. Sir Raymond, the eldest son, followed in his mother's footsteps by somehow managing to be named Lord Edgar's heir. He couldn't hold the position of governor of Riley Island as a knight, so he would have to be elevated to a lord when the time came. Sir Raymond's younger brother, Sir Monroy, was a well-known captain in the Riley Island Coast Guard. The youngest boy in the family was Milo. He had left Riley Island ostensibly to study at a prestigious academy for bright and gifted children, but people speculated that he had been sent away due to some misconduct or other. The daughters of the Stone family were perhaps better known than the sons, if there were a way to judge such things. Hannah, Fanny, and Jalen were notable for two reasons. First, they were all three very beautiful. Second, they were all witches. These facts concerning the Stone family were well known to Woodrow. The Stones were part of the daily gossip at the grocers or in the pubs, of course, but more than that, Sir Raymond had been a longtime friend of his father's. It became clear to Woodrow that he had not been noticed standing in the shadows. He remained there, with Tamberline by his side, and waited for a break in the conversation in order to announce himself. My dear Mr. Compton, Dame Nora was exclaiming, this will not do. I dare say your comments concerning my son reveal some black-hearted jealousy of his good fortune at being named Lord Edgar's heir. Such brackishness is most unwelcome. At that point, Woodrow saw for the first time the dark figure of a man leaning forward with his hands on the table. Although he had only seen the silhouette of the man, his tall frame, his broad shoulders, his posture, the way he now stood rubbing the back of his neck pensively, all would have indicated the man to him, even if Dame Nora had not just said his name. It was, of course, Woodrow's father. My apologies, Dame Nora, Compton said in a dry, deliberate tone. I had no intention of offending you by merely speaking the truth. Sir Raymond is not yet governor of this island, nor has he been officially lorded by the king. At this, Sir Raymond scowled and gestured at Lord Edgar, who had just taken a drink from his mug and now had spiced ale dripping from his chin. What difference does it make? Raymond retorted, as if a bit of spilled ale were all the evidence of his own lordship that was necessary. And besides... The vessel was promised to me. I need not lay claim to lordship to take hold of that which is contractually mine. Compton took a deep breath and waved away Raymond's words. I gave you my word, Sir Raymond, and I intend to keep it. Then do keep it, Mr. Compton. Hand the moonshadow over to me. She has already taken her maiden voyage without her rightful master. What further insult do you intend to show me? Compton groaned and held the bridge of his nose between thumb and forefinger. Why is the Stone family so intent on being insulted? I gave you my word, and I will keep it. But you must understand that the Moonshadow is a wholly new type of vessel. 
The technology behind it is unpredictable. It must be extensively field-tested. I expect it to take a period of months. Months? exclaimed Raymond. Miss Hannah leaned forward. You say technology, Mr. Compton. But from what I've seen of your invention, it has very little resemblance to any technology known to men. Precisely, Miss Hannah. Which is why I cannot, in good conscience, hand the moonshadow over to your brother. But perhaps, Hannah went on, arching her eyebrows, you do not understand your own creation. And perhaps you do not understand it because the moonshadow belongs less to the field of natural philosophy and more to the field of magic. In that case... Who would be better equipped to determine the moonshadow's virtues than my sisters and I? Compton seemed taken aback by Hannah's statements. He did not have a reply. Raymond pronounced a single mocking ha! and sneered down the table at him. You didn't think of that, did you? You think you're so clever, devising ways to deprive me of my investment and property. But the Stone family has outmaneuvered you and exposed your incompetence. At this, Lord Edgar looked up from his mug and scowled at Sir Raymond. A lord should not speak so rudely of his guests, said Lord Edgar in a voice that seemed to evince all the wrinkles in the old man's time-worn face. The whole party ceased their bickering, as if Lord Edgar had just walked into the room and not been with them all along. Sir Raymond cleared his throat. My apologies, Lord Edgar, but sometimes it takes rudeness to expose a more troubling rudeness. Raymond set his gaze upon Compton. And what rudeness do you speak of? said Lord Edgar, his wrinkled face skewed in inquiry. Raymond is referring to the dispute he and I are having, Compton explained. Regarding what? It really was as though the old man had just arrived and had not been present for the whole argument that preceded it. Regarding the moonshadow, my lord. The moonshadow? The lord's eyes were glassy and uncomprehending. Raymond made a deliberate motion of putting his chalice down. He took a long-suffering breath. Mr. Compton holds that he owes no fealty to Riley Island or the Kingdom of the Dewey Isles when it comes to one of his inventions. Not so, my lord, said Compton. My sentiments, as I have tried to explain to Sir Raymond on several occasions prior, are that the moonshadow is the work of my hands and should be used in the service of Riley Island and the Dewey Kingdom, but at my discretion. It will simply take time to test. Raymond went rigid in his seat. He jabbed a finger in Compton's direction. Do you hear, my lord? At his discretion. As if his work was not fostered under your lordship's generous and wise rule, without which no such thing could have been created. It is bordering on... The indignant knight made an abrupt halt to his speech. He smiled darkly to himself. What am I doing? He muttered and began again in a patronizing tone. 
Don't you worry, your lordship, about this petty matter. I'll see that justice is done. Lord Edgar lounged back in his seat. His eyes were half-lidded. Sir Raymond turned back to Compton and looked as though he were about to make some final pronouncement. But the old lord raised one hand in a magisterial gesture and began to speak. Our ancestors, the first men to come to the Dewey Archipelago, the heroes of old, they bought this island with blood and battle and drove the ancient inhabitants into the sea, great serpents and other monstrosities. They built the kingdom of the Sanguinian people and defended it from the sea. For a thousand years they ruled in might until the Tomic Empire came in force and humbled our people. We were brought under the Empire's rule and made to be citizens and taught the ways of a finer civilization. But the old ways have always been respected in the Dewey Islands, and now that the Empire's reign has receded into antiquity, the old ways still remain. In the old ways, a man's work is his own and not even a king can demand it from him, lest he propose to take it by force. And so it is that a man must always be ready to defend his property. This is the old way. We respect it still. Do you, Lord Raymond, propose that we ought to take Mr. Compton's creation, by force? When Lord Edgar finished, he hunched over the table and took a long, sloppy quaff from his mug. While the old man had been speaking, Raymond sat, wrapping his knuckles on the table, grinding his jaw. Anything else, my lord? Raymond asked through clenched teeth. Lord Edgar seemed not to hear him. Woodrow heard rapid footfalls approaching from the passage outside the hall in the main building. Tamberline's ears twitched following the sound. The hall door flew open and a chubby guardsman stumbled in. He rushed to the table to address Sir Raymond but kept glancing sidelong at Lord Edgar. There's been... Huffed the guard. There's been an explosion. Sir Raymond looked up at the man and... For a moment, Woodrow thought he might chastise him for impertinence, but then Sir Raymond seemed to have another thought. He looked questioningly at his mother and sisters, and something unspoken passed between them. Woodrow felt a sudden sense of dread. He reached for Tamberline, but found she was gone. Grimbles, Sir Raymond declared, standing to his feet. All of Riley Island is in peril. I will personally see to her protection. The guard cocked his head and blinked several times, his mouth attempting to form a number of questioning syllables, but no words came out. Miss Hannah rubbed her brow, and the rest of the ladies at the table exchanged irritated looks. Grimbles, said Compton. I'm not sure. What else could it be? 
declared Raymond. We must make the defense of this island our immediate priority. Um, the guardsman began to say, but Raymond silenced him with a raised fist. Secure the castle, he commanded the guard. He turned to Compton and, putting on noble airs, said, It is time we put the moon shadow to test, old friend. From her bow, we will fight off this invasion. It's not really designed for... Compton began to say, but shook his head, thinking better of it. What invasion? Grimbles, you fool! Raymond shouted, losing his noble demeanor along with his patience. What have I been saying, damn you? Miss Hannah cleared her throat and affected a sagacious tone. We have foreseen it. Foreseen it, said Compton. You and your sisters are witches, not prophets. They have their means, Dame Nora said with finality. It is best to set aside this grievance between you and my son and see to the defense of our vulnerable homes. Compton bowed his head and rubbed the back of his neck. Dad, Woodrow said and stepped into the light. They all looked at the boy in astonished silence. They truly had not seen him until that moment. Woodrow, Compton said. Are you doing here? Ah, uh, yes, Raymond said. I summoned him. Why? Never mind that. We have more pressing concerns now. The boy will stay here. He's safe in the castle. Dad, Woodrow said. Don't go. Compton stared at his son. The whole room stared at the boy. Give me a moment with my son. Compton led Woodrow away from the table into the shadows. We haven't much time insisted Raymond. Says you, Compton muttered. He drew near to his son in the darkness and whispered, Where's Tamberline? Woodrow looked past the dark shape of his father. Two iridescent points of light glowed and bobbed in the shadows above as Tamberline paced a rafter beam in silence. She's here, Woodrow whispered. Stay close to her while I'm gone. Dad, I don't... Just stay with Tam-Tam he said more sharply. He took a breath and composed himself. I had a plan. We still might. If not... Compton didn't seem able to share his thoughts under the current circumstances, so he patted his son on the shoulder and turned back to the table. We should arm ourselves if there truly are grimbles about as you say, he told Sir Raymond. There's no time, Raymond replied, then pulled his coat back to reveal a pistol holstered at his breast. Besides, I am always prepared. Now let's off. We go to the moon shadow first and sail her back here to the armory. Then we can rain down our fury upon these little monsters from the sky. I will save this island from disaster, and her citizens will finally know my merit. Compton gave Raymond a searching look. So, that's your plan, is it? he said, and there was a note of sadness in his voice. Let's go then. Don't you want to know where the explosion occurred? Asked the guardsman, who had not moved from his spot despite the order given him to secure the castle. He seemed thoroughly dumbfounded by what was going on around him. Yes, of course, Raymond said. Compton went to the door. You're wasting time, Raymond, he called over his shoulder. Let's go fix this mess so you can play hero. The three men left in a hurry, leaving Woodrow, Lord Edgar, 
and the women behind in the hall. The shadows of the dinner party that remained loomed large, dancing upon the stone walls in the firelight, like dark spirits engaging in the evil revelry of black magic rites. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by me, A.P. Weber, and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme song was written by Josiah Martins, and original music was provided by Mackenzie Stubbard. I'd like to take a moment to thank my patrons, and in particular, Dave Merwin. Dave Merwin has this really great blog called A Walk Upon the River. Uh, you can find it at davemerwin.com. That's D-A-V-E-M-E-R-W-I-N.com. I'm not much of an outdoorsman. I like to hike, but um, <laughs> not much of a fisher. Um, haven't done a lot of backpacking, but Dave writes about those things and kind of life lessons from living in the outdoors and, and, and experiencing nature that, that really, um, inspire and make me think I should try that. <laughs> so, uh, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, if you enjoy, um, the outdoors, or even if you don't, I think it's, it, it gets, he really draws you in with his writing. So go check it out. DaveMerwin.com. His blog is a walk upon the river. And thanks Dave for supporting lies and half truths. As always, you can reach me at truths and half truths at gmail.com. Give me your recommendations and let me know what you think about the show. And don't forget to rate and review lies and half truths on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. It really helps to get our show in front of a broader audience. Thanks a lot. Until next time.